Welcome back, everybody, to the Cave of Solitude, your pop culture and comic book podcast coming to you from the megacity metropolis of Toronto. I'm your host, Eric Anthony, and this is episode 257 coming to you live from Fan Expo Limited Edition 2021 with Jim Zub. So as was mentioned in the intro, this episode is going to be live footage from this year's Fan Expo Limited Edition 2021. I had the privilege for the very first time to moderate a panel. Uh, the one that I got to do first was a spotlight, a creator spotlight on Jim Zub, who's been on the show before. Actually, I think we recorded our last episode at the Fan Expo a few years ago. But this is a, a real special treat for me, something I'll always remember. And I got to say a big thank you for, to Jim Zub for being the easiest interview of all time because he's a wonderful storyteller and gives you all the details that I had planned to ask without having to ask him but also a special shout out to Kevin Boyd who included me on the schedule as well as Sam Noir and my good pal Martin Slam Duncan of the Fastball Special slash Sketchomania who included me on their panel that they had for Dracula Visions which was very very cool and I'm very appreciative to everybody who uh, was a part of that weekend with me. So without further ado I'm going to do no more talking about this. We're going to get right into the episode. It's going to probably be um, the sound is going to be a little different because we're recording it live and we're in the big uh, Hall E, they call it, at the Metro Toronto Convention Center where all of the retailers and whatnot are. So the acoustics, we're gonna, we're gonna try to figure them out and do our best to make the, the sound quality of this interview, uh, this spotlight on Jim Zub as good as possible. But thank you everybody for tuning in, for listening, for uh, sticking with us with the show. We're gonna have more good stuff coming along. And like I said, without further ado, let's get right into the episode. Jim Zub, Fan Expo 2021. Thank you for coming to Panic Hope Rumble. Hope you guys are doing well. Hope you're having a good week. Welcome back to conventions. That's right. This 2021. Is my first convention literally in two years. It's kind of historical. It is. It's sort of strange. The last convention I did was Paris, France, like end of October 2019. And I thought, this is a good one to finish the year off on. And next year I'm going to go to every show everywhere. And then things change for some reason. We're back. We're back. Welcome back, everybody, yeah, to Fan cool. Expo 2021. Uh, my name's Eric Anthony. I host a podcast called The Cave of Solitude. Uh, it's my pleasure to be the moderator for this panel with the renowned writer, artist, teacher. Oh the list of, of critically acclaimed books in your bibliography is Thank extensive you. now. Thank you. Let's give it up for Jim Zub. Thank you. All right. It feels weird when someone says renowned. I'm like, who? What are we talking about? What's going on? But into it, it's safe to say that you are in many ways as big a fan as everybody here. I am. I am a huge. Yeah, I'm a huge comic book guy. I'm a huge uh, Dungeons and Dragons guy. That's right. Big video game nerd. I love all the things. I love Japanese animation, and I've traveled extensively to Japan. Um, yeah, I'm kind of like proto nerd on all this stuff. My older brother was. Um, Kind of my my watchword for, for all the nerdy things. He's uh, four years older than me, and so as he got into like science fiction novels and fantasy sword and sorcery novels, and then comic books, and then anime, and then video games, like I just sort of trailed after him 
trying to uh, get on top of it, and he is cool as he was. Well, as cool as any right. eight-year-old thinks a 12-year-old is. But yeah, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, we were just all into this kind of stuff. And, and he took more of a tilt towards science fiction, and I really hunkered down on fantasy, and right. I absolutely loved this stuff. Never imagining that I would ever be able to make this my job. Like, you know, you dream about when you're a kid, but now being in the midst of it, it feels pretty surreal. It's good. And what's cool is that you're actually working on all the stuff that was your favorite stuff yeah. as a kid. Yeah. Like that, I, that doesn't happen the way it's happened for you. No, it's like the nerd equivalent of saying you're going to be an astronaut and then you become an astronaut. That's like, I literally grew up on Dungeons and Dragons and Conan the Barbarian and the Avengers and like all that stuff. Right. And now I've worked on those things and continue to work on those things. And that um, is very, very special. And I don't ever, ever want to take that for granted. Like, I've had the chance to travel all over the world. I've had the chance to meet a lot of my artistic heroes. And, and some of them, I, like a lot of them are very, very kind and very, very supportive and really wonderful. But every so often I'll run into someone and they're very bitter and they're like not, I don't want to you know, talk out of school like names wise, but like some people are, I don't think they realize like they've forgotten how amazing this is. Do you know what I mean? Like they right. forgot how amazing it is to do the stuff and to be able to keep doing the stuff. It, it just became a job to them. Yeah, maybe. yeah. Or they just realized, you know, I don't know. Not everyone is going to be whatever Stan Lee or Frank Miller or Neil Gaiman, and that's fine. Like there's right. all sorts of different ways to make your way through this industry, and you don't have to be at the top of the pile every single time to be doing awesome stuff. Right. And that's not to say I'm not striving to do better or more or bigger. But it's just like, this is great. I'm having a blast. I get to do this. You know, uh, my wife, uh, she's so good. When I get really stressed about the job or deadlines or everything else, she can put it in context really well. She just looks and she goes, and yet, you're still writing comics. I'm like, right. oh yeah, I'm still writing comics. It's pretty cool. Yeah, this is pretty great. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm getting stressed about like continuity. <laughs> you know, some people have to get stressed about like actual important things and I get stressed about oh my god you have to make sure we reference all these old stories like because someone's going to take over someone's going to pick gonna it up you know <laughs> yeah yeah it's good it's a really wonderful feeling and to try and and I, so as you mentioned at the top I teach uh, I teach at Seneca College in their animation program I teach storytelling I teach there. drawing is that one of them? I think so oh, someone, oh, oh okay. someone's just someone's <laughs> applauding you yeah, um, sorry and I really, really enjoy doing that. I love teaching, I love, I never imagined I would be a teacher. I love teaching, I love engaging with the students. And they, every single week they were, just their presence reminds me of how excited and nervous I was to, to wanna do the job. And so their enthusiasm and their vibrancy constantly keeps me young and keeps me like excited. Cause I'll, you know, they'll ask me what I'm working on and if I say I'm doing a new Dungeons and Dragons project, they're, they're like, I sparkle. And yeah. I go, right, because this is awesome. And it is. And it's just like, I love, I love that. I love that feeling. I love that the students are still, you know, it, like I said, they just remind me of what it was like at the very start. Because I remember being where they were and wondering, oh my God, is this a real career? Can I make a, a living at this? Is this going to happen, you know? And then you slowly, slowly make your way through it. And you look in the rearview mirror and you go, holy crap, look at the traction, look at the stuff you've been able to do. Keep going, yeah. you know? That's kind of the, the marathon, right? Right. So. so when you were a kid, 
playing D&D, writing D&D, yeah. &D, how much did that exercise, like what was it about particularly writing D&D right. that affected what you So I've do? said that I would not be a writer today without Dungeons and Dragons. Right. And that is absolutely true because as a, a mode of thinking, first of all, it, it, it gave me a voice. Like I was the youngest of kind of my family, like my, my brother and my older cousins. They wanted to do all sorts of stuff, and because I was the little scrawny kid, I right. couldn't play sports with them. They would just crush me, right? <laughs> and they were, you know, video games even, like they had more hand-eye coordination because I was really young. But at the gaming table, when we played together, and my brother or my cousin would ask me what I wanted to do each turn, I'm on the same footing as them. Like, my character is just as powerful as them. I can roll a die, and if I come up with a cool idea, everyone at the table is laughing, and they're engaged, and they're excited. And I felt on the same footing as all of them. So it gave me a voice, it made me creative, it made me want to tell stories, create characters, and entertain people. There's nothing quite like, you know, someone reacting in the moment. You tell a great joke or a great story, and people respond, they're so visceral to it, you know? And I love that uh, about storytelling. And it made me want to be a storyteller, it made me want to entertain people. And your ability to, both collaborate with other people at the table and also spontaneously come up with things, those are really powerful tools in, in creative you know, uh, jobs. Because it's not just about what you come up with when you have tons of time. It's like literally you pitched your best idea <clears throat> and an editor goes, yeah, that's not gonna work. We're already doing something like that. What else you got? And you burn it in a moment and you're like, um, we could do this, you know, and you're just like, you've got to be able to pitch, you've got to be able to, to generate material, generate ideas, quick. you know, quick. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that it's always going to be like that, but just having that in your pocket is really useful. <clears throat> and D&D taught me all that. It taught me how to collaborate. It taught me how to be confident. It taught me how to not just say what I want, but also listen to what other people want. Like D&D is collaborative storytelling. And by the time we finish a game, none of us individually could have made the thing that we just made. We all had a part to play in it, and we all contributed to it. Right. And that is what a good comic book creative team does. That is what a good movie you know, unit does. That is what a good TV crew does. And so it's all the same skills, really. Mm -hmm. You have to be as good a listener as you are a speaker. Right. You, know, you have to be as good a communicator like, and an engager that, that it's not just about me getting my way. Like, I think people get the wrong idea about, because the writer in the comic book hierarchy currently is very in vogue, you know, they'll talk about Jonathan Hickman's X-Men. And right. like, there are dozens of artists contributing to this damn stuff, you know, like, or, or Dan Slott's Spider-Man. Yes, Dan, of course, is intrinsic to that run and is amazing. Those artists make that thing work. The editor and the colorist and the letterer, everyone's contributing to it, right? Your ability to engage with them and get them excited is part of the job, you know? It's not just about my way or the highway. It's like, I want the editor to believe this is the best story idea, not just because I pitched it, but because they love it too. Right. And if they come back to me with questions or concerns, sometimes people will be like, oh, the editors, they must make you like hell. You're like, no, they make this stuff better. Because right. if I can't convince them this is going to be the best story possible, they're the first audience. And those questions they ask me are the questions a reader is going to ask, or even more in-depth than that. So I've got to bring them on side. Right. 
Right. If the artist isn't excited to draw this, we're not going to get the best thing possible. So when I talk to the artist, I'm like, here's the cool idea. First, I'm getting them pumped. And then I'm like, what do you love to draw? What are you into? How can I bring those elements into the story so that you, every day you sit down to draw this thing and you are pumped, you are psyched, you want to do this more than anything else, you know? The best compliment I ever got, so far I think one of the best I've gotten in my career was uh, Andy Suriano, he's one of the designers of Samurai Jack. We did the Samurai Jack comic series together. And he, originally, one of the ideas was that he was going to write it and draw it. And it was what's called a bake-off, where multiple writers are drawing in their pitches, and then they get evaluated. And Andy got, because he works for Cartoon Network and he worked on Samurai Jack, he kind of got the inside track. He should have just done the whole book himself. He read all the pitches, and he said, I wanted to draw your story more than I wanted to do mine. There you go. And I was like, what? And he goes, yeah, man, I just really wanted to do the story. You just had a killer pitch. It was really awesome. And I wanted to meet you and I wanted to draw it. And I was just like, okay, that's the best compliment. Like, I literally, I outpitched the guy's own thing. Like, great, that's what you want to do. If I can do that, if I can engage you and excite you and make you want the, to do this thing and the publisher wants to publish it, then we've got something cool. You know, it's not just we need to fill commercial widget in this quarter let's earn a couple bucks. Like it's, you know, when they asked me to do Conan the Barbarian, I didn't actually, I guess I'm jumping all over the place. No, I was gonna ask you next about Conan. Yeah, Conan, you know, Conan was so intrinsic to me. And my breakout book for comics, in 2010 I did an independent, an image book, creator owned called Skull Kickers. And that book is my love letter to Conan the Barbarian and Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. And now I write Conan the Barbarian and Dungeons and Dragons. Like that is impossible. That is insane to me. Um, and writing D and D, the way I got to write the Dungeons and Dragons comic was a bit of a twist of fate. In 2014, they were developing a new edition of Dungeons and Dragons. It's now fifth edition. It's insanely popular. The most popular the game's ever been. But at the time, it wasn't. Like before the game launched, the fifth edition. No one knew if it was going to do well. And 4th edition had ended on a, let's say, controversial note. I don't hate it as much as some of the fans do, but some fans really didn't like it. Some fans really like it for its kind of um, gaming roots and its, its kind of traditional sort of tabletop strategy approach. But we're getting outside the point. Um, there was no D&D comic at the time. I was doing the Samurai Jack series, and Ted Adams, who was one of the owners of IDW, approached me at Emerald City Comic Con, and he said, I love Samurai Jack, it's one of my favorite books we publish. I want you to do more stuff for us. I mean, it's the best thing you can hear from your boss. And he said, what do you want to do out of all the stuff we have licenses for, what are you interested in? And I knew they had the Hasbro sort of master license, like G.I. Joe and Gem and the Holograms, like everything. They got everything Hasbro related at the time. And I said, well, either I would love to do Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or D&D. And he goes, well, Kevin Eastman's coming back for Turtles, and that guy's kind of got priority. Yeah. Why do you want to do D and D? And I was like, it's my favorite game. It's my favorite thing. I love it. And he's like, you know, Wizard of the Coast are really hard licensor, and they're very specific. And you know, the comic has done okay for us, but it's not like a, you know, a world beater. And I said, I just really want to do it. And he's like, well, let's set up a call with with Wizards and see how it goes. And I got on the call with them, and I figured out they weren't that particular. They're just hardcore D and D nerds, and so am I. So as soon as we started talking, it was like, yeah, we're all talking the same language here. 
I want to do the book that feels like the game that I grew up on, and I want to do it right, and I want to make it feel fun and engaging. And when I write D&D, I always make it feel like the characters are even more than in a regular action story, like they're making snap decisions. Because at the gaming table, you make snap decisions and you roll dice and things are out of your hands. So whenever possible, I have this runaway train feel to a D&D story where it's like, they thought they were going here for this, but it's way worse and they're in way more danger and stuff's gonna fall apart. Because that's mm -hmm. a D&D game, one random roll and you're all of a sudden, you're underwater, right? And so that's what I wanted it to feel like. And when people tell me it feels like a great D&D session, that's like, that's the best compliment. You're doing it right. And then with Conan, like I actually got to write Conan. Gail Simone and I did a Conan Red Sonja crossover series in 2015. And it was the first time the characters had been in the same book in 15 or 16 years. And um, Gail had built up a really big fan base for her Red Sonja run. And she wanted to do a team up book and knew that I loved Conan the Barbarian and asked me if I would come on board and, and co-write with her. And it was great fun. And I was just starting to build up my rep at that point. It went well, I enjoyed it, good times. But at the end of the day, it was Gail's story and I was kind of writing the Conan parts of it. You know what I mean? Right. And then um, when Marvel got the rights to Conan back, I had done a, a run on Avengers with Mark Wade and Al Ewing. We did a weekly book called No Surrender. One of the milestones in my career, I had such a good time. Like literally did a writer's room at the Marvel office where we jammed the story for like nine hours and figured out all the beats. Uh, it went over really well. A year later, we went to go do a sequel called No Road Home, and the, the, one of the surprises was that Conan the Barbarian was gonna show up. Uh, and so I'm sitting in the writer's room. I know Conan's one of the pieces we have on the board. And I went in there like, I'm gonna write this character. And I, I sit down with Al and Mark, and I'm like, okay, look, I don't wanna be an ego, but like I've written Conan before, and I really love the character, and I'm hardcore into it. And Al Ewing just goes, Oh, cool, slow. You should write. You right. should write. And Mark goes, yeah, I'm not a huge Conan fan. It's all yours. And I looked at them and I was like, no, you guys are supposed to fight me for this character. Don't right, just right. give it to me. <laughs> I came here with like a legal case to win Conan and you guys just rolled over and played dead. No, tell me why you like Conan and I'll tell you you're wrong. And they all laughed and whatever, you know. <laughs> so I got to write almost all the Conan stuff in No Road Home. And that was fun. It was great. And again, I thought that's my last chance to write Conan. What a cool experience but I couldn't get it out of my head that I'd never written the character solo. I'd written it with Gail, I'd written it with Alan Mark, and it's got my fingerprints all over it, but it's an, it's an ego thing. Like I want just my one solo writing credit on that damn book. And so I pitched Mark Basso, he's the editor of the Conan books at Marvel. I pitched him, because they were doing, Conan the Barbarian was the flagship book, Jason Aaron was writing it. And then they had Savage Sword of Conan, which is like a, a rotating anthology style book. And I was like, if I could just wedge in for an issue or two, I would love to just do a solo story. It would mean a lot to me. I've got some really cool ideas. Mark's a pitch me. I pitched him this idea that eventually became a three-part story in Savage Sword called Conan the Gambler. And it was like all the ingredients that I've seen in other classic sword and sorcery, but I gave it a bit of a spin that I felt like I hadn't quite seen in Conan before. And it's got a, a surprise ending, and it's got, it's violent as all get out, it's crazy. You put a character who, wants to solve stuff with violence into a situation where they can't solve stuff with violence. Like it's, it's all of these classic elements, but I felt like I tuned it well. And that was supposed to be my mic drop. Like that's a Conan story. I never have to write Conan again. Right. 
if you ever want to know what I think of Conan, that's it. Boom. And I did it. And I was like, yeah, and I'm super proud. Pat Zerker drew the hell out of it. It looked great. And I felt good. Like, I'm, I got that out of my system. And I didn't anticipate it, but instead it became, it became a, like a tryout for more Conan. Right. I thought it was the last time I'd get to write Conan. And they were like, oh, no, that's your audition. And I was like, oh, my God. And so they said, we've got this idea. We want to take these other Robert E. Howard characters. And the general public doesn't know Solomon Kane. They don't know Dark Agnes. You know, they don't know these characters. Can you bring them into one story with Conan? Because he's wow. the flagship guy. And let's do this thing. And so I literally, over a weekend, I came up with what eventually became Serpent War. And it's like, there's this even more obscure character that Robert E. Howard wrote called James Allison. I could be wrong, but I think he's one of the first meta characters if he's not one of the if he's not the first he's one of the first okay. he's like a self-insert for robert e howard he's an author he's a writer living in rural texas who has been injured horribly and is dying in a bed now robert e howard wasn't injured and dying but he was this author living in a little rural texas and this guy james allison this character has nightmares of past lives that he's lived and he's lived all these sword and sorcery lives and killed all these mythic monsters and all this crazy crap and i was like that's robert e howard like basically like he's having delusions and then he's conan or all these other characters i was like yeah that's the guy that's the spine of our story this james allison guy is actually living these past lives reincarnating and seeing all these places his energy is going to bring them all together because they're all in different time periods like dark agnes is in you know, one time period, and Solomon Kane's in a different time period, and, you know, Conan's in the Hyborian age, like, we've got to bring them all together. And then they wanted to have a Marvel component to make it even more of a kind of a hook. And I said, well, the one kind of, you know, set, the, the snake god is a villain in Conan, like, and, and Thothamon and all the, the snake god stuff. And Set has been a big villain in the Marvel universe well, who else fights those kinds of gods? And we've got other gods. So I said, look, we've got to bring Khonshu, the god of the moon. So that means Moon Knight. So we've got Moon Knight now in the mix. Everything kind of fit together. I wrote the first script for that. And I, as much crazy crap as I could put into it as I could. And the, the day after I sent that script in, Mark called me up and he said, they want you to take over the flagship book. Jason's wrapping up his run. Right. First of all, I didn't know he was wrapping up his run. Second of all, you want me to take over the monthly title for Conan? I didn't actually say yes. I said, give me a day. I need to think about it. And it's weird, because people say, well, that's a bucket list, and it was, and I never imagined I would get that opportunity. I didn't just want to say yes out of hand. Like, I had to make sure I had enough ideas with the character that I could do it. Right. And I also, I had committed to a bunch of other writing projects and I knew I had to clean my schedule because if I screw this thing up, I will regret it forever. So I um, called up some of my other editors, adjusted some of my schedule stuff, I dropped the project I was supposed to do, and then I called them back and I said, okay, I'm taking over the time. Like, I'll do it. And my first issue came out February 2020. So of the 13 issues that I did, 12 of them came out during the pandemic. So it's been the weirdest feeling doing this like dream book and not being on the road promoting it the way that I assumed I would, you know. 
So like this show is one of the first times I've been able to sign comics. People bring it over the comic books and I'm chatting with them and they're super excited and it's the best feeling to finally have that. Like conventions are so fun because you get to meet the people that are reading the stuff and they get to respond to you and tell you what they like and just find out those little pieces, you know what I mean? Right. And now it's like I finally get to have those interactions and I'm really, really excited to be chatting with people about it and what I love about the character and what they love about the character. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned before about um, meeting some oh, of your heroes. Right. And some of them weren't always the friendliest people to meet. Right, right, right. But when it comes to Conan, oh, yeah. everyone so, associates Roy Thomas. Did, yeah. you, did you get a chance to meet him? I did. And what was that like? So I got it. This is really special. So the last convention I did before this, two years ago, Paris Comic Con, Roy Thomas is at the show. You guys don't know who Roy Thomas is? He was. You know, he took over as editor-in-chief of Marvel for some time. He created the Vision and Scarlet Witch. No, created Vision. He's created dozens of characters in the Marvel Universe, and he's written the most Conan stories ever. Hundreds of issues of the Conan comic that I grew up on. Every single one of them have got Roy Thomas's name on it. The guy is a deity of this, of this character and this world, you know? He's written more than Robert E. Howard ever did. Like, he is associated indelibly with the character. And so I'm at Paris Comic-Con, he's a guest. I know I'm taking over the series, but it hasn't been announced yet. I just right. really want to meet him. I've never met him all these years. So I talked to his assistant and they, they set up a meeting for us outside of the signing time, so I don't have to like line up. It was very nice. I get to go over and chat with him and I was just sort of doing the nerdy like, oh, you know, I'm, you probably don't know who I am. I, I, I'm also writing some Conan stuff. And he said, well, what have you written? You know, Mark sent me a bunch of the recent books. I said, well, I did this story called Conan the Gambler. And he goes, oh, I really like that one. And I, I had that look of like, is this guy lying? Like, he's just being nice because that's what you're supposed to say. And then he said some specific plot points from the story that he liked. And I was like, oh my God, he actually read it. <laughs> oh my God, he actually liked it. Like, this is he's serious. killer. Um, and then I said, Roy, I gotta tell you something in confidence. Next month they're gonna announce I'm taking over the flagship book. And he looked at me, and there was this pause, and then he reached out and he put a big hand on my shoulder, and he said, welcome to the fraternity. And I was like, oh my God, like one of so my absolute knighted. writing heroes just knighted me, yeah. like he just gave me his blessing or whatever and said I was doing good by it. And that is one of the purest moments I've had in all my conventions. I've probably been to 250 conventions, and that's like way up in my top three, top five, whatever moments it was so good and there's a photo of us and i am beaming like i'm the biggest nerdy happy guy like it sparkles in my eyes i'm so happy you know roy just like made my show i came walking back to the table yeah. my wife's there and she's like you are walking on air <laughs> i'm like i am walking on air like i cannot at this i should buy a lottery ticket like this is the craziest Doesn't thing get stuff. Than that. yeah roy's amazing you know um Ed Greenwood, he's the creator of the Forgotten Realms, which is the biggest setting in Dungeons and Dragons. And he's actually from Ontario. He's a, I've met him a couple times, and every time I meet him, he's nicer and warmer to me, and now he's just like, it's ridiculous, because again, I grew up on that world, you know? Right. And, and he like sent me a, a fan mail about my Conan run. And I'm like, the guy that made the Forgotten Realms is reading my comic and gushing about it, Pinch me, like this cannot be happening. This if you ever had imposter syndrome, did yeah, it go yeah. away at that moment so in time? So people ask me about imposter syndrome or do I get writer's block? And yes to both of those things. 
Here's the difference though, and I try and explain this to my students all the time. I have the benefit now of having, like I've written over 300 single issues of comics, probably about 50 trade paperbacks worth of stuff. I've got a bookshelf behind me of my books, which is, it's, an e it's not meant to be an ego thing, but they're just in my yeah. office. So when I have a moment where I feel like I suck and I can't do this, and I do, we all do, yeah. the difference is, is instead of me going, I can't do this, I'll never be able to do it, I suck, I think to myself, oh, this is the part of the process where I've convinced myself I suck and I can't do it. But that proves I can, those books. So I'm gonna get through this. And I just keep at it and keep at it and keep at it and I'll push through the other side. I think a lot of people early in their creative careers, they don't know they can push through. So they feel it and they go, no, I'm supposed to be inspired all the time. I'm supposed, everything's supposed to feel, when you're talented or when you're good at this, it's never supposed to suck. Right. And so they give up. They, they have those moments and they're like, well, I guess I'm not meant to do this if it doesn't feel like magic. And it's like, man, there are days it does not feel like magic, but you still find it. And I think when you pull victory out of the jaws of defeat, when you find the story, when you thought it sucked, or when you find the heart of the thing that was missing for so long, it's, it's like a sweeter victory. Right. Because it's not easy. Because you, you, you killed for it. <laughs> you dug right. as deep as you could go until you found that piece that's gonna make that thing work. And when people say to you, oh yeah, and then that big moment in the story, that you know, you must have planned that from the beginning. And you're like, man, I wish I did because it would have been a hell of a lot easier. But no, I had <laughs> that's to- That's how you came up with it. I right? had to sweat blood to find that one, you know? Like whatever that might be. And even now, like I literally had a meeting with Tom Reboard, who's one of my big supporters at Marvel. He's, an ed he's the longest running editor at Marvel right now. And he's been in my corner for years. And we had a, a call about a project. And I came in, I wouldn't say cocky, but I came in pretty confident. Like, he's just going to give me the green light and we're all good to go. And he came at me with a bunch of really good questions that I did not have all the answers to. And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> and I could feel my confidence dropping. And he's telling me the stuff he likes about it. And we're going to find our way through this. But it wasn't an easy, it's still not an easy process. Sure. It's still going to take time. It's still going to be a struggle at times. And those questions he asked and those criticisms he has will make the end result way better. Right. And that's the important part. That's the job, right? And so just because I've done a bunch doesn't mean uh, it's easy now. It's easier in the sense I know when something's going off the rails right. or if something's not gonna work, but it's not necessarily um, yeah, it's still, you're still finding your way through every kind of project, and they've all got their own challenges. Right. Yeah. Does, uh, does anybody have any questions before we wrap up? Yeah. Ask away. And I'll, I'll, I can repeat it or. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the question is, you know, Robert E. Howard's been, sorry, Conan's been written by all these seminal authors um, over the years, and they've all got their own kind of takes. What do you feel is intrinsic to the character? Um, and that's a really good question, because everyone's sort of got their own sort of take on, on who Conan is, and some of them are more brutal. It also, I think, depends on what era you're writing. So there's sort of three pillars of him and his youth, and him and his prime, and then him as the king, you know? And then even past that, the king, 
kind of bitter in his older years, but that hasn't been dealt with very much in, in terms of actual canon uh, material. I feel like Conan is, he's the ultimate sellsword survivor. Like, he will do, you know, as Crumb made him and his people, he will survive, he will fight, he will not give up against whatever foes he may face. And survival is kind of the ultimate test of the Hyborian Age. And most people are ground under by its brutality and its viciousness. And he is not, um, he is not a villain, obviously, and he, will, he has a sense of honor to him, but he also knows that in the relentless face of, of death, he must you know, fight on. And I think that's something really potent about the character, and it speaks to a lot of people in different ways. And some people look at him in a more of a philosophical way, and some people have a very macho approach to it. You know what I mean? Like, it's fascinating to me, once I started writing Conan, that community is so varied. And some of them are literally literary scholars who can quote line and verse from Robert E. Howard. And some of them are like, like, like jingoist, like macho men, you know, blood and steel and, and strength, you know, might makes right kind of people and everything in between, you know what I mean? And, and so they will find themselves in that character and they want to see that in your version of it. You know, and some of them are like, oh, he's very, um, I think people also, obviously the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movies have cast such a, a long shadow on the character. And so a lot of people don't realize the assumption is that the barbarian's an idiot or, or he's unintelligent. And it's like in the books, he's brilliant. He's not book learned, although he does know a bunch of languages by his prime. But he has an incredible judge of people and he's a motivator. There's a reason why he becomes a king by his own hand because he's a leader and he, and he sees the strengths in people and he knows who to raise up and who to get out of, of his armies because they're poisonous, you know what I mean? And like, he has an instinctive sense of right and wrong and an instinctive sense of who the people to surround himself with is and who is, is bad for him in that way. And so those are kind of qualities that I wanted to bring to the character as well, that yes, he's brutal and vicious and strong as hell, but if all you're doing is a physical tearing the heads off stuff and chopping things down, you're only seeing one facet of an actually very fascinating character. And I, that's why it was so important for me to put him in situations where he couldn't just gut people. Because if it's a physical confrontation, he's almost certainly going to win or he's gonna be overwhelmed by numbers. If it's one-on-one, -on -one, he's probably got it. But it's like, how can I put him in situations where he can't just cut someone down, where he has to be more strategic, more careful, more, you know, use his guile. And that was something that was really important to me because I felt like I had that, I saw that in the old comics and I saw that in the novels when it was being done in a way that I liked, you know? It's funny too because I didn't realize Obviously the character is super important, but that community is super hardcore. And even the other authors who write Conan, we're all pricks. Like we all think we know the character best, you know? And we don't want to give each other an inch, which is another reason why Roy saying he liked my story feels so precious. But like most of the other authors will quietly tear each other down behind the scenes, I think, because they, they really want to write more of the, the character. I think that's true of probably most iconic characters. 
like Gail actually told me one of the things when she finishes writing a, a run on a character, she tries not to read the character anymore because you just get angry. Like you just get frustrated. Like I would have done it differently or that's a cool germ of an idea, but you lost it. I would have done it like this. Oh, you've got good ideas, kid, but you know, not as good as me. And I feel like if you've written Batman or Spider-Man or Wonder Woman or whatever, there's probably a, a sense of that where you, you, you feel like you could do it better all the time. And I don't want to be that person about Conan. I want to just like, Jason's doing King Conan coming up and I'm really pumped to read it. And I guess that will be the test, whether my eye will start twitching and I'll be like, ooh, I would have done it different, you know, but hopefully not. Because I don't want to be, yeah, I don't want to be bitter about it. I want to always feel good about what, what I did and what other people can do with the character as well. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you have a question? Come a little closer, sir. Yeah, come a little closer, pal. Yeah. Sure. So just writing advice? So just, uh, the question was about writing advice and writing in general. So I think the best thing to do for people starting out is to be able to create, obviously, but finish things. I think a lot of people who start off in writing, they have really ambitious ideas, and ambition is huge, but if you do short stories or you do very contained things, you can get them done, and then you can critique them and learn from them faster. A lot of times people will be like, they'll come at me and they go, oh, I want to do this 12-issue series, or I want to do a, I want to be the ongoing writer of whatever, and you're like, that's cool, but you literally have not done anything else yet. You have to build up your craft. Plus, you also have to build confidence and momentum. Short stories are great because you do two, three, five, six, ten pages, you have a complete unit of creativity. You can look at it with a clear eye and go, was I successful, did it work? And if it's a comic, it's also like, it's like a blind date, like you're going on a, on a date with that artist. You're trying to figure out how that relationship works, that working relationship. And then if it works, you can go on and do something more ambitious. And if it sucks, you can pull the ripcord and get out. You're not stuck with this person for a longer project before you know how you work well together, you know? And I think that's also a really valuable thing. You learn what you can do better and you learn what everyone else in the creative team can do better. And then you get more ambition. You know, a lot of times I feel like, if I want to use another, whatever, mixed metaphor, people want to run a marathon, but they want to run like 15K before they even bought the shoes or they went around the block. Like, go around the block. What's it like to write a story? What's it like to write a scene? What's it like to get some characterization? And the other thing that I, I tell my students all the time is, the minute you decide you want to make this your job, you can no longer be passive about your entertainment. Like whenever I watch a movie or a TV show or read a book or read a comic, that little gear is going in my brain and it's like, I like this, I don't like this. I would do this this way or, I really, I learn from watching what other people do and what they don't do, you know? So when I watch a thing, I'm constantly evaluating, oh, that's a really good story turn. Or I'm, I'm being very aware of my own emotional state. Like if I'm in a movie and I'm really enjoying it, I will literally, there's a part of my brain that goes, why am I enjoying this? At what point did I start to care about this character? 
Was it a line of dialogue? Was it the acting? Was it the framing? Was it the music? Like, why am I so on board? Or vice versa, why does this suck? Like, why is this not working for me? Why do I not care? Why is this plot seem nonsensical? <clears throat> I'm constantly tearing it apart or lifting it up in my brain to understand it, not because I want to copy it, just so that I can hone those tools so I can look at my own work with the same critique. Why is this not working? Why don't I care? Why am I not excited to write this? Why is someone else not responding the way I want them to? You need to have that critique ability. You need to have that ability to evaluate. And the only way to do that is to constantly be doing it. And a lot of people will, they'll point that weapon and be a critic online, or they'll start a YouTube channel and they'll say that every movie sucks and every comic sucks and whatever. And for me, it's like, I'm highly critical, but I'm not a critic, like a public critic. It's not my job to give a movie five out of 10. What is my job is to learn from storytelling and make my own stories better. Do you know what I mean? So that's my kind of two suggestions are make stuff, finish it, evaluate it, but then hone that evaluation ability and be aware of your own taste, why you like something. My wife is also a writer, but she does more prose stuff. And whenever we finish watching a movie, we're insufferable. Like, I don't think any of our friends can deal with us, so we just sort of do it ourselves. We just talk about what we liked or what we didn't like or what story logic, you know, what parts really clicked for us. We finish watching an episode of a TV show, and if it's a 45-minute show, we can talk for another 45 minutes about, about what we just watched, good or bad, you know what I mean? And that is a good tool for us to learn from things and to reevaluate, like, oh, that's a really good, you know, we watched whatever, Squid Game, and it's like episode by episode, we were just like picking it apart and this is amazing, or man, I was so engaged, or I thought I was gonna cry, or what an incredible turn, or really, really well acted. And then making predictions, like I think this is gonna happen because they've set up this evidence, and I feel like we're gonna go in this direction. Or sometimes in the middle of the episode, and this is why we're the only people we can watch TV with, five minutes before one of the characters does a thing, I realize they're gonna do it, and I go, oh, it's gonna do this. She goes, you think so? I go, oh yeah. And then it happens, and she goes, oh, you really pegged it. And I'm like, no, I should have caught it sooner. You know, like, but this is how we learn, and this is how we build up our skill to be better storytellers, you know? So hopefully you find that helpful. Anything else, folks? Any other questions before we wrap up? Anything else, you guys are good? Yeah, sure. All right, let's do it. Go for it. Sure. So what am I most proud of for Dungeons and Dragons? Um, so there's this selfish thing, which is I literally... Welcome back to Fan Expo Canada. We would like to remind you of the following health and safety guidelines. If you are feeling unwell or have symptoms, please return home. Masks are mandatory. It's important. Masks must cover your nose and mouth at all times. Wash or sanitize your hands often. Where possible, Please keep your distance. Thank you for making the show a safer place for everyone. All right. So the selfish thing in D&D is I literally, and at the start, I, I kind of promised myself I wouldn't do it, and then I realized I had to. I took one of my old characters and I made them a canon character, and then they became popular and people really like them now. And so one of my old D&D characters is literally now an official canon D&D character, and there's like fan art, and they made a magic 
the gathering card of that character, and they're in a couple of the video games, and I'm just like, well, that's cool. Um, but in terms of like actually important stuff, so the, they did a set called Descent into Avernus, and I was the creative consultant on that. So what they do at Wizards is, for every major source book they put together, they have their writing team, they have freelancers, but they also have what they call a creative consultant. He's an, a man or a woman that they bring in to, into the office, although I'm sure they did it digitally last year. Um, and you literally hang in the office for three or four days and you just jam ideas because they don't want to always have the same people with the same ideas over and over and over again. So they bring in an outside force and that person breaks stuff and tries things and says, you know, let's go this direction. And so I got to come up with a bunch of the Averna stuff. And one of the weird questions I asked was, how do you, how does the economy work in hell? And so in hell, in the nine hells in Dungeons and Dragons, you, you have these things called soul coins and they're used as currency, they're used as ammunition, they're used as, as a storage device. And that was something we came up with in a jam session because I asked what is the currency of hell and how can we make it function <clears throat> so that people can get rewards or have stuff taken from them. And so people love that thing and they love the mechanic and um, they've made physical props of the soul coins and Beetle and Grimm's, which is this like deluxe D&D prop maker, made wicked soul coins that are these huge metal things and they sent me a couple of them and I've got them in my office now and I'm very proud of those. So that's probably, I don't know if that is the most lasting thing. What am I saying? The Dungeons and Dragons Young Adventurers Guides that uh, <clears throat> my wife and I co-wrote with our friend Andrew have been translated into six languages and they're meant to bring new players into the hobby. Every week I get photos from little children and their parents watching those books. I get photos from little French children and German children and kids in Italy and South America holding those books and excited about making stories with their friends. And it's sort of the perfect roundup to this panel because it's like taking us back to the start. Like I, that book series will probably outlast everything else I write. And the memories and the future professionals are being found in the kids who play with those books. That's what I'm most proud of. How's that? Awesome. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, everybody, for staying with us in this panel. Stay safe. Enjoy the rest of the show. Be sure to check out.